Well, this morning I'll be continuing our study through Luke's gospel that we've been in some time. And I'm going to be picking up right where Jason left off last week. That's typically how we preach at our church, if you're new here. Uh, One consecutive passage after another consecutive passage. And we do that for several reasons. But one of them might be worth mentioning this morning. The Bible speaks of seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Bible tells us that anyone who has seen Jesus has seen God. John chapter 14. And in another place it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews chapter 1. So you see a theme. Seeing Jesus. The whole Jesus. The real Jesus. The Jesus that's presented to us in the scriptures. Not the Jesus we pick and choose. That Jesus. Seeing him is crucial for beholding the glory of God. And so the gospel accounts, and really the whole Bible, are a mosaic, is a mosaic. It's the little pictures that add up to the whole. And if we were to neglect part of it, or some of it at least, we would be impoverished. Last week's passage, we might perhaps be more naturally drawn to the picture of Jesus there. Jesus has tears in his eyes. It's a touching scene. This week he has a whip in his hand. But we preach all of the Bible because we believe that even when it seems like a passage challenges us more directly than others, we believe that every passage is there for our good. And for beholding the glory of God. So with that in mind. Would you turn with me to the end of Luke chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading in verse 45. Through the end of the chapter. And continue reading through the first eight verses of the next chapter. It's odd I know to break or to preach across a chapter. But these are two little passages that have many things in common. So we'll be taking them together. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 45. And he, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, 
All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you join me in prayer as we ask the Lord to be our teacher and show us his goodness in Jesus Christ this morning. Heavenly Father, even as we just sang a moment ago, would you impress upon our hearts the reality that when we have Christ, we're not wrong to sing hallelujah. Lord, it, it is hard sometimes when we look at passages and we see the gravity of them and we see the way they challenge us. And yet, Lord, behind that challenge, Lord, would we see your love and your compassion? That you're willing to drive out, even with a whip, the idols in our lives so that you can have full rule and reign over our hearts. To that end, we pray this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Jesus often told parables as he was developing a theme or making a point. And I'm not as good of a teacher as Jesus was or I guess is. Um, But if you'll permit me, let me tell my own little parable of sorts to develop the theme that I think is front and center in these two passages. There was once a man who lived near an elementary school. He was a good man, and he worked hard at his career. And every day he would drive past this elementary school on his way to work, and he would see the children. And now that he was retired, he wanted to help. So he became the school crossing guard, volunteering his time. He was good at his job. The children loved him. The parents felt at ease. The cars, even as they passed by, would smile at him. He'd get down on one knee and say, Good morning, Johnny, or that's a lovely dress, Sarah. But somewhere along the way, things went wrong. Oh, he still loved to wear his bright orange sash. But for this crossing guard, he just seemed to notice the children less and less. He carried his huge sign that said slow and didn't mind that at all. In fact, he kept showing up earlier and earlier, stopping the cars really Just because he could. And the cars, well, they never seemed to be going slow enough for him anymore. The children became afraid. They hurried through the crosswalk. No more chit-chat. The moms, in fact, they drove to the back of the parking lot and went in the school through another door. The administration eventually had to ask him to leave. You wouldn't know the first thing about keeping people safe, he said. Without me, this place would be a disaster. Strangely, the crossing guard just kept showing up morning after morning, causing a disturbance and waving his sign. Then one morning, while he was wearing his little sash and holding his little sign, a car pulled up that he didn't recognize. But everybody else did. It was the chief of police in his squad car with his badge and his gun. 
I'll take it from here, he said. The crossing guard stammered, well, well, who says you can do things around here? Who gave you that right? I'm in authority here, and the cars obey me. Okay, it's a, it's a silly parable. It's a silly parable. But I think my little parable brings to light what went wrong in Jesus' day. And what can still go wrong in our own. We don't want anyone to have authority over us. And when we love our own authority, we can't recognize, let alone love, true authority. But the way we begin the Christian life and the way we continue to enjoy the Christian life is by laying down our claims to authority and embracing the authority of Jesus Christ over every detail of our lives. When Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, this is just a couple passages ago, they hail him as king. But when he comes to his temple, he sees that things are not as they should be. Luke's account of this is shorter than the other accounts in Matthew and Mark and John for that matter. But we get the point. Jesus is challenging their authority by driving out the money changers and those who are selling things there. But we should ask, why was Jesus so frustrated? And who were these sellers anyway? And what were they selling? Well, merchants were selling things to worshipers entering the temple grounds for their sacrifices. This last week of Jesus' life, as you might recall, is timed with the celebration that's called the Feast of Unleavened, Unleavened Bread, which then culminated in the Passover celebration. The Passover celebration was a commemoration of the rescue mission that God undertook to rescue his people from slavery in the hand of Pharaoh. And because of the celebrations, Jerusalem, this town of perhaps 40,000 people, would swell to perhaps as many as 200,000 extra people. And many of them having traveled from a long distance away. And because of the distance, it was easier to carry money than it was to carry a sheep. And the other things you needed for the sacrifices and the celebration of Passover, the bread, the wine, the oil, salt. And so instead of carrying those things, you carried money until you got to the temple. And you would purchase there at the temple the things you needed. But you paid extra for that convenience. There were certain upcharges and fees by the religious leaders. A rake, we might call it. And all of this was taking place in what was called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the closest a non-Jewish worshiper could get to the temple to worship. So a worshiper goes in to worship, but instead what they find is something like the farm show. Everywhere you turn, there was a wild mass of people and animals and all sorts of selling and butter sculptures. Well, maybe not butter sculptures. And Jesus drives out the sellers saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus loves the written word of God. It was so often on his lips. Here he's quoting one verse directly and alluding to another. 
The passage about prayer comes from Isaiah chapter 56, which speaks of the blessings that the temple would be for people of all backgrounds. People who had previously had no access to the living God, to the real God. And Jesus is saying, now that I've cleaned this place up and I have your attention, let me remind you of what God's house is supposed to be. A house of prayer for all people. Isaiah 56 verse 7. But instead of um, it being that, he alludes to a passage in Jeremiah chapter 7, calling it a den of robbers. Now that passage in Jeremiah 7, we don't have time to go into the background of all of these, but suffice it to say, it's a scathing critique. It's a sermon that's a scathing critique of the people of God for their many, many abuses, some of which are their presumption of how they treat the temple. And Jesus is saying, what they were guilty of, you're guilty of. He's certainly challenging their authority. The temple was supposed to be this, but you've made it that. It was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship and safety, but it's be, it was supposed to be a place where foreigners could become and be joined to the living God, but it's not. It's a den of robbers. That language should be jarring. What places do we generally consider safe? Such that it would be jarring to hear that what that safe place actually was, was a hideout for criminals. What if a nursing home or a daycare facility was the place where the cartel was using to store drugs? What if a church was a front for organized crime? That's not right, we'd say. We'd be mad. And Jesus was. And so were the religious leaders. But for different reasons, of course. Because this was their turf. They had authority. This was happening under their watch. Indeed, it was happening under their direct supervision. Which is why we read in the next verse, that right after Jesus drives them out, that they are seeking to destroy him. That's the most overt statement of their attempt to kill him. In the Gospel of Luke, there's been other statements where they're hinting at their frustration, but they've, it's said outright in verse 37 for the first time. They can't have this rogue, young, whippersnapper, pseudo-rabbi, wannabe Messiah convincing all these gullible people. Especially now that they're all hanging on his every word. Things escalate so quickly because Jerusalem is packed with people. All over the city, the stories of all the things that Jesus has done are being whispered in every corner of the city. And so the leaders can't kill him outright. That is, unless they can challenge his authority in such a way that they can get him to mess up. So that's what they try. As we think about the details of the last week of Jesus' life... Tuesday, so triumphal entry was Sunday. Monday, he cleanses the temple. The next day, he comes back. And here, they have this exchange in chapter 20. In chapter 20, the exchange that takes place, and some of the, I think as it spills into chapter 21, is an entire day of confrontation. Jesus challenges their authority, even as they... Excuse me, they challenged Jesus' authority even as he had just challenged theirs by driving out 
the money changers. Let me read just verses 1 through 4 again to remind us of what's said there. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up. And they said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's easy to only beat up on these religious leaders, but there is a legitimacy to their question. Who is this Jesus? By what authority does he do these things? And who is it that gave him this authority? Those are legit questions. So questions you should be asking. The other week there was some bad weather here in Harrisburg and as elders and leaders of the church, we weren't sure how it was going to play out all week. And then as Saturday was coming, we weren't sure what would we decision we should make about canceling church on Sunday morning or not. So we put together this plan of here's what the, I, you know, here's the things we'll think through and here's the order we'll think through them in. And then when it comes time, we'll make a decision. So that's what we did. We thought through things. We made a plan, thought through things and, and made a decision. But if someone who had only been coming to our church for, let's say, two weeks, all of a sudden got on our church Facebook page and said, I'm canceling church. And then, I don't know, hacked our email accounts and sent emails to all of you and said, church is canceled because of snow. I think we would legitimately go in, who is it who gave you this right to make call off church? By what authority do you do these things? So the problem is not their question or questions. The problem is the motive from which the question arises and their unwillingness to answer or listen to the answers once they've been given. They try to corner Jesus, which is a bad move. You can't corner Jesus. You can't trap him in his words. Jesus responds with a brilliant question of his own. He asks About John. John had recently been killed, but John had a ministry there in that region that all of them would have been familiar with, certainly all the religious leaders. And Jesus asks if John's ministry was of divine origin or if it was merely the work of human effort. Was it from heaven or was it from man? Jesus asks. And the brilliance of the question is that coded in that question is. The way that it forces them to wrestle with their deep beliefs, not just about John, but about Jesus. Let me read the next few verses, 5 through 8. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? Now, if they say from heaven, with that word heaven, it's fancy word is a metonymy, I think. It it, it means where something stands in for something else. So like when the White House issues a statement, like a house doesn't issue a statement. The president issues a statement, right? But we say the White House on behalf of the president's authority. Here we say from heaven, from God, that's what's going on there. Then why did you not believe God? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us for And you just hear the disdain. For they are convinced that he was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what 
authority, I do these things. When Jesus asks them a question, they call a time out to think things over. <laughs> Not that anyone is thinking about football today. But it's like when a quarterback lines up at the line of scrimmage and he looks around and he realizes the defense is in a set, uh, in such a set that, that, that his offense, he has the wrong players on the field. So he's going to ca- call a timeout and they're going to go to the sidelines, they're going to talk it over and they're going to regroup and come at the situation again. So that's what the religious leaders do. They weigh their options. If we say that God was behind John's ministry, well then of course Jesus will ask us why we didn't believe him. Why didn't we believe that God was working through him? And that's the brilliance of the question. Because when you think about the ministry of John the Baptist, front and center in this ministry is John's repeated affirmation that he was not the Messiah, but that Jesus was the Messiah. Look, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if... John was speaking for God, and John said that Jesus was the Messiah, then the religious leaders would know by what authority Jesus was doing his ministry and who it was who sent him. God. If God sent John, and John was saying that Jesus was from God, then Jesus was from God. But they didn't believe that John was a prophet of God. Again, you can almost hear the disdain they have for the common man when they say, all the people are convinced that John was the prophet, right? They're convinced, but not us. And just like earlier in the passage, they have to back off from their real motive because they're afraid of the people, or not real motive, the real outworking of their motive because of the fear of the people holds them back. So they answer, we don't know. No comment. And when they do that, they completely abdicate their responsibility. If they really thought Jesus and John were all doing ministry of merely human origin, or even worse, if they thought that Jesus was doing miracles by the power of the evil one, which is something they said to Jesus earlier in his ministry, then they had the responsibility, no matter what the personal cost, to call it out. They were the eyes and ears and mouth. But they're blind and deaf and dumb. So Jesus won't answer them either. But I want to be clear about something. They were trying to trick Jesus. But Jesus was not trying to trick them. Jesus weeps for them. Jesus pokes their idol of money to get their attention so that he can ask them a question, not so he can learn something new, but so that they can learn something about their deep motives. Jesus wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth. When Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, he's saying that if they had only answered them, he would have told them. In fact, in Mark's gospel account, that said explicitly, he wanted to answer them. How do you think Jesus would have responded to them if he had come, if they had come to Jesus after their time out and said, Jesus, we talked it over and here's what we learned. We love our own authority and we don't want to share it with others. 
In fact, we're tempted to not even answer your question because whichever way we answer it, we know we're going to lose something. But we know that it's The only way to answer rightly before God is to answer honestly and to ask for forgiveness and the grace to live a changed life. How do you think Jesus would have responded? Probably like he did to Zacchaeus just a few weeks ago when we studied that passage. When Jesus stood up in the midst of his peers and renounced his own sin, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Luke chapter 19, verse 9. I mentioned at the start that we typically preach at our church one consecutive passage after another. And one reason we do this is because we don't want to miss any of the glory of God seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Last week's passage, perhaps for some of us, we might be more naturally drawn to the Jesus presented there because we see Jesus with tears in his eyes. And this week he has a whip in his hand. But we preach all of the Bible because we believe that even when a passage seems to challenge us, we know that that challenge is there for our good. God asks us questions that are sometimes uncomfortable. Because he wants us to learn something, not because he needs to learn something new. Way back in the book of Genesis, perhaps you recall, when Adam and Eve sinned, he goes to Adam and says, where are you? God hadn't lost him. Then he said, who told you that you were naked? God already knew. And then he said to the woman, what is that? What is this that you have done? He knew what she had done. You flip over a page, you're in chapter 4, and God says to Cain, where is your brother? God hadn't lost him either. This passage speaks of the authority of Jesus. And when we speak about the authority of Jesus, we're talking about something without boundaries. Something that doesn't start here and in there. We're talking about something boundless. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And he backed up this claim over and over again, calming the storms, feeding the multitudes, pushing back the powers of evil, healing the unhealable, and taking up his own life again, and advancing the kingdom of his love through humble people in his church. Are there places in your life that you're not letting Jesus speak to? Do you try to keep Jesus in a corner? Just tell him to stay put. You can have Sunday morning, Lord, but don't follow me to work or don't follow me out with my friends. Or maybe perhaps another angle to it would be that you know you've needed to speak up for Jesus. But you've caved because of the peer pressure. Your love for the praise of man. If that's so, which is all of us, we should tell God sorry. But we should also look to this passage and be very, very encouraged. What I mean is this. If the sin of the religious leaders couldn't back Jesus into a corner, then neither can your sin. 
There is no sin that you've ever committed that is so bad or so often repeated that Jesus is not able to overcome it. You can't catch him off guard. I want to close by reading two verses from the Gospel of John. It's actually from the beginning of the Gospel of John. It feels weird perhaps to leave Luke's Gospel at the end and go to the beginning of another Gospel. But there's two verses that really describe, I think, the dynamic in part that was taking place here. But also the dynamic that I hope by the grace of God would be taking place even among us. John chapter 1 verse 11 and 12 we read. Verses 11 and 12 we read. And he, Jesus, came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus came to his own people, like these religious leaders. But they couldn't lay down their own claims to authority. They couldn't receive him. But to as many As those who did and do lay down their own authority. That is, those who receive him. He gives them the right to become children of God. The Jesus who can't be cornered is not against us, but for us. If he pokes our sin, if it feels like he's holding a whip as he speaks to us, it's because he's fighting our sin on our behalf. If he asks us tough questions, it's not so he can learn something new, but it's so that we can learn something new. And so that we can be drawn into deeper relationship with him. If you are in Christ, the Jesus who can't be cornered is for you, not against you. And that's good news. Let me close our service in prayer and then invite the worship team to come up and lead us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, it's very easy to do. Sometimes, perhaps even often, we're not doing it consciously. But we take these parts of our lives. It could be the work life. They could be home life or relationships or our money. And we just don't let you in. It could even be our religious life. Lord, I'll do my duty. Just don't disrupt. Just don't disrupt things. Don't actually show up. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to not leave us there. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage and the faith to own that that's wrong. And Lord, in our faith and our trust in you, even as Ben was praying earlier, we would be able to feast on you and your glory and your grace and your mercy. That you take our sin and you separate it as far as the east is from the west. So that we can leave here the happiest of all people as your children. We pray all these things in your name.